I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I invite you tonight to join me as we turn this studio into a sanctuary. We'll be worshiping the living God together. And as always, I trust that both the message and the music will be meaningful. I'm Hal Brady, and I welcome you to this program. Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning at verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, 
for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I do not want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O oh God, your will be done, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Thank you for this sacred opportunity. It is my prayer that you will touch me and touch someone else through me. It's all in your name and for your sake. Amen. I want to begin tonight by sharing with you four statements which I feel represent the thinking of countless numbers concerning the modern church. The first statement was made by a rather discouraged servant of the church. This servant said, The church is like a referee in an athletic contest who has swallowed his whistle and can neither direct nor stop the game. The second statement was made by a candidate being interviewed for the office of the Episcopacy of the United Methodist Church. He said, We have good theology, good worship, and good inclusiveness. But he said, We've lost our passion. We've lost our sense of urgency. The third statement was made by a woman who was describing her worship service on Sunday. She said, you know, I just kept waiting for the casket to come down the aisle. And the fourth statement was shared by a Christian friend in a recent conversation. This friend said, Hal, do you think the church will even be around in its present form in the middle of the 21st century? Now all of this, I say all of this, represents the church at the midnight hour, the church in retreat. The question desperately needing to be raised is, when will the retreat stop? This question was put very well by a concert violinist by the name of Old Bull when he was asked to go to church with a friend. I'll go to church with you, he said, on one condition that you take me to hear someone who will tempt me to the impossible. When will the modern church move out of the midnight hour, stop the retreat, and tempt this world of ours to the impossible? Thank God there are some indications that this movement of the Spirit has already begun. Several years ago, I was in Varna, Bulgaria with the Executive Committee of the World Methodist Council. The church in Varna was 150 years old, but it had been closed for the previous 30 years. Under the communist regime, the church had been turned into a mariner's show, and the clergy had been imprisoned. We were there when the church had just been reopened about a year and a half. The church was so crowded, they couldn't get the people into the sanctuary. The Sunday schools were so big, they had to meet in the outdoors. The church had plans for a new church. I saw those plans. As a matter of fact, the groundbreaking occurred while we were there. The church was going to be built in the heart of the city. And how appropriate it was going to be built in the heart of a communist city at that. How very, very appropriate for that. The pastor of the Barter Methodist Church, in speaking to our executive committee, said the people are full of enthusiasm. He said they are full of enthusiasm because God is with us. And then he said, if God is with us, who can be against us? That is a good question. If God is with us, who can be against us? To this end, the church singing at midnight, I want to offer several suggestions. First of all, the church singing at midnight will refocus on Jesus Christ as the center of its certainty. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. Notice the object of Paul's belief is not what, but whom. Whom is the arresting word? Howard Eddington, former 
pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Orlando, Florida, said his grandfather was right when he said, either things will change or disappear. He said his grandfather himself disappeared because he succumbed to cancer after a four-year struggle. He said the family that used to live in one place, they were now living in Texas and North Carolina and Florida and New England. He said even the old home place at 1305 Dauphin was no more. He said his grandfather was right. He said either things will change or disappear. But then his grandfather said, but Jesus never will. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something better than a cause, and that is love for and loyalty to a person, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Why should we in the church always start again with Jesus? Basically for two reasons. First, new life and renewal has always began anew when the church became sensitive to Jesus. Let me give you some examples. In the 13th century, Francis of Assisi courageously withstood the opposition of the papacy to call the church back to a consideration of the example of Jesus. He tried to live as Jesus lived and to love as Jesus loved. And many historians say it was his life and work that paved the way for the Protestant Reformation. 300 years later, the church came to one of its darkest hours. The institution had become a political hierarchy, corrupt, powerful, and spiritually barren. Ignatius Loyola turned away from wealth and influence in Spain to call the church back to an example of Jesus Christ, and his movement brought new power to a decadent institution. When we remember Martin Luther, what do we think? We think of such doctrines as freedom of the Christian person, justification by faith. But how many of us remember that his message was, call, was a call to return not simply to the Bible, but to Jesus? And then there was our own John Wesley who was confronted by cathedrals that were beautiful, but they were spiritually barren. So what did he do? He preached Jesus Christ in Christian discipleship, and you know the result, a nation saved and a Methodist church. And then the second reason for starting with Jesus is changed human lives. We can never get around that, can we? A number of years ago, I was asked to have the prayer at the kickoff of the state polio drive for Georgia. They had me seated up there next to Dr. Jacob Bernowski, one of the world's great scientists, who was a fellow at Salt Institute. What in the world was I going to say to one of the world's great scientists? It took me half the meal to get up the courage to say anything. Finally, I said, Dr. Bernowski, wasn't that marvelous what they did in South Africa transplanting that heart? He turned to me and he said, do you really think so? I said, yes, sir, don't you? He said, preacher, what the world needs is not a new heart, but a change of hearts. He was right, wasn't he? What the world needs is not a new heart, but a change of heart. So when we're dealing with Saul out on the Damascus Road, we're not dealing in the realm of the speculative. Saul said it was the living Christ who had met him. And if we want to debate that with Paul, we have to look at the permanent change in his character, a character that was so changed that it led to some of the beautiful literature of the world's history. It also led to the production of some fine churches. Eddie Fox, who is the general secretary of the World Methodist Evangelism and a friend of mine, told us about a man who was converted in South America. He said if you were to ask him how he was converted, he would tell you by a farmer. This man was a bandit. He wore six guns. He wore chaps and spurs and a cowboy hat. But one day a farmer invited him to go to church. While he was in church, he heard the message of Jesus Christ, and his life was changed. And later on, he said, you know, I don't carry my six guns anymore, but he said, I'm more dangerous than ever. Boy, I like that. I don't wear my six guns anymore, but I'm more dangerous 
than ever. There was a superintendent sitting in the room with us when that testimony was shared. The superintendent said, I was not a bandit. I was a hooligan. But Jesus changed my life as well. So how did I get on the inside of this story of God's grace? I can only speak for me. I didn't really know what life was, was about. I didn't know what to do with my sins. My life was rather meaningless. But then I heard about what Jesus was doing for other people. And I decided maybe he could do it for me. And so I asked him, he has and he is. The church singing at midnight would refocus on Jesus Christ as the center of its certainty. And then the church singing at midnight will saturate itself in prayer. I like the story of the teenage boy that was driving his car up the street. And all of a sudden he turned to his girl and he said, If I had a hundred eyes, they'd all want to behold your beauty. If I had a hundred arms, they'd all want to hold you close. If I had a hundred lips, they'd all want to kiss you. She looked at him and said, Oh, shut up. You ain't using what you got. If we're not saturating ourselves with prayer, we're not using what we have. You remember when the Holy Spirit came, the writer of the book of Acts says, just prior to that, the people were gathered together in prayer. Prayer was their priority. Sometimes prayer to us is our preamble to something else. But for them, prayer was that something else. Prayer was their priority. William's home borders was the pastor of Wheat Street Baptist Church in Atlanta for a number of years. He's dead now. But before he'd go into his Sunday services, he would always pray, Lord, let something happen today that's not listed in the bulletin. What if we all prayed that prayer on Sundays or any other time? Lord, let something happen here today that's not in the bulletin. I challenge you to join me in praying to God for God's will to be done in this world, especially in this country, the United States of America. I challenge you to join me in prayer. Years ago, I had the opportunity of attending a pastor's school in Macon, Georgia, and I heard a preacher, and this preacher said that he'd always wanted to see the statue of Jesus that was housed in the beautiful church in Copenhagen. He said one day he had a little time, so he asked a policeman where the church was. The policeman showed him where the church was. He ran up to the corner. He opened the door to the church, and he looked down to the altar. He could see the statue of Jesus so clearly, but he couldn't see his face. He could see the statue clearly, but he couldn't see his face. The church was, a group of people were in there. He said, I've got a minute. He saw he started running his hands around the feet of the disciples. He wanted to know what the sculptor thought about these disciples, so he kept feeling their feet all the time, keeping an eye on that statue. He could see the statue so clearly, but he couldn't see his face. Finally, when he got down just below that statue, the big shadow was over him. He dropped to his knees, and he noticed the church was empty. When he looked up, he was looking straight into the eyes of the master, and he said something I've never forgotten. He said, you know, we must kneel at his feet before we can look into the master's face. How true that is. We must kneel at his feet before we can look into the master's face. Someone said, if you rely upon organization, you get what organization can do. If you rely upon music, you get what music can do. If you rely upon strategy, you get what strategy can do. If you rely upon preaching, you get what preaching can do. But if you rely upon prayer, you can get what God can do. So how very important the church singing at midnight will saturate itself with prayer. And then thirdly, the church singing at midnight will march under the banner of the kingdom of God. It will march under the banner of the kingdom of God. Christ is not only the answer for humankind, but the church is to be the blueprint of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God 
is the blueprint for the church, for what it's called to do and to be. After we have finished preaching and teaching about Christ, then we should begin communicating the message of the kingdom of God. And this, of course, is a message that has to do more than just with us. It has to do with our relationships. It has to do with the reign of God. It has to do with the reign of God in society, the reign of God on this earth. That message is much more inclusive. It is said of the early church that they live by the majesty of their beliefs. Oh, I like that. They live by the majesty of their beliefs. That church continued to see the worth of the human soul and the imperishable value of the human life. That church, that early church, looked out on the world through the eyes of Jesus. That's the reason it never flew a racial or a national flag. It's because it was looking out on the world through the eyes of Jesus. But as I said, that church lived by the majesty of its beliefs. You know, our beliefs. Let me share them with you just to remind you. First, that God is the God of all humankind and the omnipotent ruler of this universe. That Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God and the Savior of humankind and races that the kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace is to be built here in the world, that the Christian church is the clearest continuing evidence of Christian faith across the centuries, and the church is called to be a sign of the kingdom of the presence of God. I have said to you at other times, I'm from LaGrange, Georgia, and I remember a little lady in our hometown, her name was Ethel Young. Every Sunday for 25 years, she went and taught the prisoners their Sunday school lesson. It didn't matter to her whether they committed a minor or a major crime or black or white or whatever. She was there every Sunday. And then one Sunday she got ill and she couldn't go. And she showed me one of the cards she got while she was ill, just like any card we might send or receive. But when I opened it up, there written in the messiest handwriting I've ever seen with these words, we miss you very much, signed your boys at the city county jail. There is the kingdom of God. Do you remember the name Gert Bahanna? Gert Bahanna, whose book The Late Liz was made into a movie, she was divorced three times. She was an alcoholic. She tried to take her own life. By the age of 50, she was converted. She started going around after that telling people about Jesus Christ. Literally thousands of people were converted because of Gert Bahanna. Somebody asked Gert Bahanna before she died, what have you been doing lately, Gert? She said, well, I travel around a lot. And I get so disgusted about those dirty gas station restrooms. She said to go into them. Most of them you have to wear a pair of galoshes. And she said one day I complained to the Lord about how this servant of his was being treated. And then I heard him say, Hey, Gert, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And Gert behind said, I said, Lord, you mean you use these restrooms too? And she said, I suddenly realized the next person in that restroom was going to be Jesus Christ. And she said, you know, it made a big difference in what I did. I started picking up the towels on the floor. I pulled down a clean towel and I wiped off the mirror and the sink. And yeah, I wiped off the toilet seat. And then I said, well, Lord, there it is. I hope you enjoy it. That's what our Lord's kind of positive doing is all about. No trumpets, no publicity, no fanfare just doing whatever it takes to make life better for those folks coming behind us. Somebody said there are two great days in a person's life, the day he or she is born and the day he or she discovers why. The church saint at midnight will march under the banner of the kingdom of God. And finally, the church saint at midnight will redevelop an aggressive attitude. A fellow went to see the doctor. This doctor had a very authoritarian secretary 
the fellow went up to her and said, listen, I'd like to see the doctor. I got a headache. She said, get in that room, close the door, get on the table and pull the sheet up. I've just got a headache. Get in that room, close the door, get on the table and pull the sheet up. Well, what do you do? He said he started down the hall. He went in the room. He closed the door. He got up on the, the bed. And he said when he leaned back, he saw a fellow beside him. And he said, all this, and I just got a headache. He said the other fellow looked at him and said, headache, nothing. I just came in here to read the meter. I think you would have to say that that secretary had an aggressive attitude. What is an aggressive attitude? An aggressive attitude is an attitude alert to opportunity. Listen to what Paul says in our text as he talks about his own aggressive attitude. He said, I will stay in Ephesus for a wide door for effective work is open to me. And as a sort of a second thought, he said, there are many adversaries. You know, the church could learn not only from Scripture. The church can learn from the man of La Mancha. You remember Don Quixote? Don Quixote was this man who had a touch of madness. He saw things like they could be, not like they were. He saw this part-time prostitute, part-time servant working in a hotel. Her name was Aldonza. But he saw what she could become. And so he renamed her. He named her Dulcinea. People made fun of him, but these are the words that he made famous. They made fun of him, but he continued to say, and the world will be better for this, that one man scorned and covered with scars still strove with his last ounce of courage to reach the unreachable stars. Ephesus, said Paul, a wide door has opened up to us. Here's the 21st century world with all of its problems whether it's meaninglessness, whether it's poverty, whether it's homelessness, whether it's technological breakthroughs, whether it's homes declining, whatever it is, if only the modern church could see them as they really are, an open door and a great opportunity. You know, there was a pastor passing through a Sunday school area of the church, a children's area. He happened to see a little church there. This was the church that the children put their offerings in. So as he was looking at it, he picked it up. And when he did, a little boy near him said, Be careful, mister. you got our church in your hands. A wide door for effective work is open to us. Pagan Ephesus, a wide door for effective work is open to us. And there are many adversaries. Will the church sing again at midnight? Will it? That's the question. Will it? Be careful, beloved. You've got our church in your hands. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for this day, and thank you for the church. We are grateful, O oh God, for every church, for every denomination, for every church that seeks to lift you up as Lord and Savior. We ask, O oh God, that you'd bless all your people and that you would enable us to be your people and to be out in the world trying to win others to your cause. Thank you again for your presence with us in all things. It's in your name. Amen. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the evening, and so thank you for joining us. Please share it with your friends. Have a good evening. Good night. Shadow for life. Say to the Lord, my refuge, my rock in whom I trust. Hey!
snare of the fowler will never capture you and famine will bring you no fear under his wings your refuge his faithfulness your shield and he will raise you up on eagle's wings bear you on the breath of dawn make you to shine like the sun and hold you To his angels he's given a command to guard you in all of your ways. Upon their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone.